Do you have a pet? I do. In fact, mine's sleeping about a foot and a half away from my microphone. Her name is Squirty. She's a cat. A dog, a cat, a bird, a fish. If you live in North America, you're one of hundreds of millions who have some kind of pet. Yet there's a darker side to the pet industry most of us know nothing about. It's a side that involves victims. It's the trade in exotic animals. And thousands of them are primates, monkeys, and even apes in the private homes far from anything we would consider natural or wild. It's estimated that as many as 15,000 monkeys are in the apartments and homes of our neighbors. And the total number of primates in captivity in the United States alone could be 10 times that number. In fact, only 22 states have completely banned owning a primate of any kind as a pet. All of this in a country with not a single native primate. My guest today on Talking Apes is Dr. Liz Tyson. She's the programs director at Born Free Foundation and an attorney specializing in animal welfare law. In both her capacities, Liz has seen firsthand the fallout and the tragedy of the primate trade and private ownership. Hi, I'm Jerry Ellis, and this is Talking Apes, where today we're exploring the ambiguous world of private primate ownership. Talking Apes is the podcast that gets to the very heart of what's happening with and to apes like us, with experts, conservationists, and passionate primate lovers from around the world. The Talking Apes podcast is made possible by generous support from listeners like you to nonprofit Globio at globio.org. Hi, Liz, and welcome to Talking Apes. It is really, really wonderful to have you on and discuss a subject that has meant a lot to us here, but we just haven't found the right expert, and we're glad to have you. Well, I hope I can. I hope I can do you proud. Thank you for having me on, Jerry. It's lovely to. It's lovely to be here. Well, I from everything I've read about your background, I think you're exactly the person that we we need to have on and, and talking about a huge problem that I think you know, of captive primates in uh, in the world. But we're going to focus a lot of it on the United States and North America, but. I think you're the perfect person because it it is a much bigger problem than I think most people realize. And at the same time, many people would probably ask, why is it even a problem? So we're going to get into all of that. But, you know, I just have to honestly say to you right out of the gate, it makes me mad as hell that people own primates. I've spent... 30 plus years of my life with primates and apes in the wild. And, you know, you're, we're talking about amazing individuals. And, and I'm using that word individuals specifically because instead of the word species, because they are complex individuals who live in these, you know, multi-generational um, societies with their own hierarchy in a three in multi-dimensional forested world in which it's very dynamic and they have to they have to live and work in that and survive and think and and then to the thought of them being trapped in cages and small enclosures or or even large enclosures that don't offer them that kind of experience I and mean, just 
Okay, I'll, I'll get out of the way. I'll let you talk about it. <laughs> but it really does anger me. And mm-hmm. it's one of my pet peeves. And maybe that's why we haven't talked about it up to now, because I didn't want to go off like a crazy person. But anyway, your thoughts. <laughs> yeah, no, I think you're absolutely right. How, how in 2021 is this still a thing? We get asked that a lot. We also, we also get... Um, the assumption that it has been banned across the world, because I think, you know, a lot of people understand exactly what you just said, that, you know, these are complex, intelligent, sentient individuals who have these incredibly complex needs, um, and yet we can still own them. And I think really, you know, there's a couple of reasons for that. The main one being um, that all animals globally under every legal system exists are considered property. Um, and they they can effectively be possessed by someone. And I think one of the reasons that we're still here and that we have this situation where such incredible individual beings can be literally owned by people and 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 be forced to live in these, you know, such an unnatural barren environments is because what that comes into conflict with, the idea of of these animals being property, is that governments do not want to interfere with people's right to sort of peaceful enjoyment of their own property. And therefore, you know, whose rights get trumped in these situations? It's always the animals. So that's something just, we recognize their sentience, we recognize their complexity, but we don't recognize it legally. And that's one of the huge problems. That's something that we're working on. But um, believe me, I, I share your anger. I, I have the pleasure of caring for over 400 rescued monkeys at the sanctuary here that we run, um, the Born for USA Primate Sanctuary in South Texas. So I work with the victims of this trade every single day. I see the damage that it does and I see the suffering that it causes. So I am absolutely with you in your anger and frustration that this is still something that we that we're having to deal with and that they're having to deal with. Yeah, you know, I read something that you wrote in a, in a new book that you did. And actually, before we get to that, so that every, everybody listening is on the same page, give us, a, give us a sense of your background, because the reason that we wanted you on is you're not just an activist. You're not just somebody who's passionate about primates. Um, you you have a, a long history with primates and, and a very interesting and mixed background. So maybe share some of that with us. Yeah, I've been oh, I've been so lucky throughout the, the last almost 20 years to have had some of the experiences I've had. And I, I hope it does kind of come together to put me in a position that I can speak about this issue authoritatively. Um, I started working with primates around 17 years ago as I when I worked as a caregiver at a small primate sanctuary in the south of England. And if I could have known at that point where this that job was going to take me, I probably wouldn't have believed you. But from there, I ended up connected with um, primate conservation fieldwork in Colombia. So I was lucky enough to spend three years living in the Amazon rainforest, working in direct sort of fieldwork and conservation of primate populations and also working with uh, sanctuary and rehabilitation and rescue out there. Um, and then I kind of moved across, I guess, a little bit from from direct care and direct field work into kind of a more campaigning and advocacy role. And as part of that, which is something that I've done for now really the last over a decade, is really getting into the legislative work. And I think 
one of my reasons for doing that was because, you know, sanctuary work is hugely valuable. I'm still very much involved in sanctuary work. As I say, I, I run a huge sanctuary at the moment. But without the work to change policies and to change legislation, we are only ever putting a Band-Aid on a bullet hole. We are mopping up the mess of a trade which is immense, absolutely immense. You know, there's around uh, estimated to be 15,000 monkeys kept privately as pets in the US alone. So I then kind of went on a bit of a journey towards um, academia. I was, I've completed my PhD in animal welfare law, uh, which was an incredible journey in and of itself. And my focus is on wild animals in captivity and whether or not the laws that govern the keeping of wild animals in captivity actually protect them in any meaningful way. And then for the last three years, I've somehow managed to find a role which combines all of my weird and wonderful past experience, which you wouldn't have thought would ever come together. But I'm now lucky enough to be programs director for Born Free USA. So I, I get to do all of the things I'm extremely passionate about. And with Born Free, we work on care and rescue. So we look after 430 odd monkeys here in South Texas. And we also work to change legislation so that we are fixing this issue at the source. So that's sort of a potted history of my background. <laughs> that's an amazing history um, of your <laughs> background, actually. Um, we see animals used, uh, and, and let's keep it specifically to primates, maybe. And we see them used in television commercials. We see them on social media. We see them in all these places. But we also find them in, um, well, why don't you, you give us a list of those places that, that one might encounter a, a primate in this country? Sure, absolutely. I mean, primates for, for being our, you know, it's, a lot is often said about them being our closest relative in the animal kingdom. Of course, we're animals too, but, you know, that narrative is very popular and very kind of understood. And yet, my goodness, we exploit these animals who are supposedly so close to us and so like us in so many different ways. Um, you know, ranging from zoos to the exotic pet trade to performance to, you know, this kind of newer trend of sort of mobile zoo exhibits or where you can literally hire animals for parties where you have, you know, handling experiences, you know, to right through to animal experimentation. So there's just such there are so many ways that we abuse these animals that we so explicitly recognize as close to us, um, which is heartbreaking, absolutely heartbreaking. How many animals are we talking about? Like, just take the United States, for example. I mean, what is, is there any accurate estimate as to how many, how many you know, monkeys, you know, um, apes, other things are here? Um, do you know, I wouldn't know the, the answer to that. I know that with the conservative estimate for the pet trade is we think there's probably around 15,000, but then what plays into that is just the lack of regulation and the lack of oversight. So we can never really know. Um, I know there's usually around 75,000 primates used in experimentation each year in the US. In terms of the number of primates in zoos, I honestly couldn't tell you. Certainly in the thousands, probably, possibly in the tens of thousands. Wait, back up one second. How many did you say were being used in experiments? Um, around seventy-four to seventy-five thousand, and we've actually seen a spike in that um, in the last few years. So, with all of the, you know, there's a lot of again, a lot of talk, a lot of narrative around the reduction of animals in experimentation, and particular concern about the use of primates. But what we're actually seeing is the use of primates in experimentation increasing. 
which is incredibly depressing. That, that's incredible. Mm-hmm. 75,000? I had no idea. Yeah. I, 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 I literally had no idea. Mm-hmm. There was that many, and 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 fifteen thousand in the pet trade. That's yeah. That's so what we're we think. we're we're talking. So we're talking it, collectively. We may be talking of over a hundred thousand primates in in a country in a landscape that has no native primates. Yes, exactly, exactly. That, that's that's really stunning. That, mm-hmm. Wow, I. I <laughs> it's like I want to pause for a few minutes and get a beer and think about that. Uh, um, I, no, I, I'm seriously, I'm a- actually stunned by that. So how do you go about knowing that? How do you go about creating some kind of change? I mean, that that's a daunting task. So what, what's the first step? It is. I think awareness is a is a significant step, you know. I mean, if we focus specifically on the pet trade, then that feels like something that should be winnable. I think we we don't work actively on on campaigning surrounding animal experimentation. We do rescue from labs and from um, experimentation situations. There are amazing organizations working on that and doing great work and making inroads. For us, one of our major focuses is the pet trade. And it should be something that we can win in 2021. I think what we need to really work on is understanding that uh, that primates will always suffer when they're kept in captivity for all the reasons that you mentioned at the outset they are complex they're complex animals who live in multi-generational families they they live in huge troops they live in these dynamic environments which simply cannot be recreated in captivity at all with the best will in the world the largest zoo cannot create a habitat where monkeys and apes can thrive. Um, and I think one of the the biggest problems with primates and one of the, the very reasons we exploit them so extensively is because they are so like us. And I think one of the major issues with the pet trade is this isn't a trade based on cruelty. This isn't something where people set out, the people who own pet monkeys do not set out to exploit um, or dominate a monkey. And in fact, it's almost the opposite. They see them as so like us and they think that because of that, they can offer them a great life, that they will be something more than a dog or a cat, that they can um, bond with them in a way that is just so much more profound. But in fact, it is, it's those very characteristics that cause them to suffer because their, you know, their intelligence, relative intelligence. And, you know, obviously we, we base our, our gauge of intelligence as humans, which is, which is a whole other conversation, but they they are so like us. And what's difficult for, I think those of us who work in this field is to see how we can't just think about that from, then from our perspective, you know, if we were talking about a human baby, we would understand inherently that separating a human baby from not only their family, not only their mother, not only their siblings, but from everything they know in their species would have a significant impact on that child. I think we'd also inherently understand that those would be that would be an impact that would follow that child through their entire life. We we know all of this, and yet we struggle to to then apply it to this species who we recognise as so similar to us. Um, so I don't know whether or not it's cognitive dissonance, whether or not it's that people want to turn a blind eye to it. You know, in the same way that we have, 
you know, bred dogs because we think their faces are cute and they can't breathe. We do, we do strange things to animals in the name of love. We always have done. And I think that's one of our biggest challenges is to help people understand and really care that keeping monkeys captive in this way is harmful to them. I know that there's a, you know, uh, currently circulating in Congress is um, something called the Captive Primate Safety Act. Um, and you were mentioning a minute ago something about in by 2021 this year, we might be in in a new situation. And I, I know that's I think that's what you were referring to, right? Yeah. So if it if it passes successfully, the Captive Primate Safety Act would effectively outlaw the private keeping of primates as pets in the U.S. Um, there would be a grandfather clause for those who already have primates. It, it doesn't seek to criminalize those who have been, you know, law abiding for all these years. But it would put it would put an end date on the trade. Um, and what it would also do was um, ban the public interaction with most species of primates in public exhibitions. So that would be, you know, the sort of handling parties, the the renting primates out for for sort of experiences or anything like that. So there would still be there would still be ways that uh, licensed institutions such as zoos that have licenses and recognised sanctuaries who meet certain criteria will still be able to care for their animals, but it would it would effectively end the private possession of them, which would be huge. It would be a massive step forward. And it would mean there was still decades worth of work to be done because, you know, a, a monkey born today is likely still going to be around if they if they live a long life as they should in 30 years time. So our work will not be done for decades yet, but we need to put an end date on it to even start working towards that goal. From our perspective, primates don't belong in captivity and therefore from the best sanctuary, and I would include ours in that, to the worst roadside zoo, maybe with AZA zoos in the middle, with the best will in the world, we cannot provide the life that these animals need and require. Um, and every sanctuary that is worth its salt will tell you that they would love to be put out of business because our our driving force is to not hold wild animals captive. We are providing respite for animals who have come from much more traumatic, much worse situations. But, you know, I am fully aware that the guys here, their world is so much smaller than it should be so much smaller. You know, even, you know, I drive out to go and get the groceries or I drive up to the city to go and see friends. They never leave this site. I mean, it's a huge site. We have 175 acres. We have our largest enclosure is 56 acres where we have 144 monkeys free roaming, but it's not enough. It's never enough when they're in captivity. Um, and I think the difference between a sanctuary and, say, a zoo or another kind of business, which whose aim is to exhibit animals for whatever reason, is that we will not breed animals. We rescue them. We give them a home for life. We do not perpetuate their captivity. It's not it's, we're not here to create more babies to then live another 30 years in captivity in perpetuity. We understand that by effectively denying the monkeys here the, the opportunity to have a family is absolutely infringing on their natural behavior and taking something away from them. I don't deny that for a second, but what we're doing is we're, you know, we're playing God with these animals, but we are balancing the 
our end goal, which is to to no longer have any monkeys in captivity at all. And unfortunately, by virtue of the fact that they were sold into the pet trade when they were babies, they've had to be rescued by a place like ours. They are victims a number of times over and they're the ones who pay the price. But for us, it's so important to move towards an end to this trade because like I say, with the best will in the world, with the best possible care, with the veterinary care, with the husbandry, they don't belong here. So that brings up a question. What if if we could... If we could have, um, you know, legitimate licensed sanctuaries, uh, because most zoos are not going to take these animals. I mean, it's the the design of their zoo is they have very tight controls on on their breeding populations of of animals and things within that facility. So it really does fall back on. And correct me if I'm wrong, but it really would fall back on sanctuaries of your kind to take them in. But if we're talking about fifteen thousand in in private ownership and and that would be the the initial groundswell um, that would come from a law like this, you know, potentially. How do we how do we manage that problem? Um, the answer is one which uh, which no one no one wants to hear. But there there aren't the sanctuary spaces, and there never will be. There will never be sanctuary spaces enough to care for 15,000. And that's one of the reasons why there needs to be the the grandfather clause that the, you know, the monkeys who are currently in private possession need to stay there, not only to protect, you know, the, the current owners from, you know, going about their business and not, not being criminalized for something that was previously legal, but also because we, we can't take them all. We have, we're lucky if we can take, you know, three or four new monkeys each year, then you know, that's a lot because, you know, these, you know, like you said, like Afia said that the enclosures here alone to house 12 monkeys is over a hundred thousand dollars and they won't last an entire lifetime. So, you know, we still need to replace those every decade. And I think one of the things that we're very clear about, and we were very clear when we talk to our supporters and members of the public, and when we talk about the trade is that I think there is a kind of belief that the animals arrive here and that's their happy ending. It really isn't. We are receiving often extremely traumatized animals, often animals who have really significant health problems or behavioral problems, animals who have literally never seen another monkey before. And the process of recovery for them can take, you know, some of them just dive straight in and they're, you know, within a couple of weeks, they're they're having their best time. Some of them, it takes years. And if you're happy for me to share a story of a particular monkey, he's one who I, I talk about in relation to this trade, because I think his his story is so common, to be perfectly honest. He's, um, his name's Charlie. He was a seven-year-old Japanese macaque. He was absolutely beautiful. He was, a, as, a, as a physical specimen, he was perfect. Um, he'd been born into the pet trade. He was bred. He was sold. He did exactly what a young monkey would do. He got a little bit older. He wasn't so cute anymore. He grew his canines. He got really strong and he attacked the grandson of his owner. And the grandson was, I think he, he, he bit his hand badly. The grandson was hospitalized, but thankfully not. There wasn't any serious lasting damage. And then of course, the owner wanted to get rid of Charlie. Charlie was almost killed. I think the, I think the, 
story made the newspaper and a local animal protection group campaigned for him to be released to them. So they took him. He then went to another sanctuary near us. And the the director of that sanctuary called me and said, we have him, but he's just not, he wasn't settling. He wasn't, he was incredibly aggressive towards the staff and also the other monkeys. I think they didn't have any other Japanese macaques and the majority of the monkeys we care for here are Japanese macaques. And we said, okay, we'll take him and see what we can do. We had the same story. He was he was hyper aggressive and he was also absolutely petrified. He would go, he would ricochet between abject fear where he would just hide. He wouldn't let us see him. If he saw us coming, he would duck into his his kind of heat box and he would stay there until we left. Or he would wait until we were looking the other way and he would lunge at us and try and attack us. Um obviously he's in a safe enclosure, so we're we're safe as such, but we tried to introduce him to probably about three or four different monkeys every time it started off okay. And then he would just get so upset and we would be fearful that he was going to either harm himself or harm the other monkey irredeemably. So the final the final stage, we, we, we had, I think, one other monkey we really wanted to try and get him housed with and we thought it might work. And this is, you know, months. He'd been with us for about a year by this point and he'd predominantly been on his own. And I was out working with the monkeys and a colleague of mine called me over and she just said, pointed at Charlie and she said, I think he passed away. And he was dead. He was dead in his enclosure. He looked perfect. And his necropsy showed that his physical health was um, as it should be. And his cause of death was cumulative stress that had that had had a had a physiological impact on his body that made him um, suffer internal hemorrhaging. And it was that that killed him. Can you imagine just how, imagine that the stress of being in the pet trade killed this absolutely healthy monkey who should have been alive for another 20 years. And his story, I just think is so indicative of what this trade does. And it's not people beating them. It's not people actively being cruel towards them. The trade itself is a cruelty. And I think that to me is just kind of the the crux of it. A quick question. Why so many Japanese macaques? It seems like an odd monkey to be having so many of. Yes, this this sanctuary yeah this sanctuary what they are still they are still relatively commonly kept as pets but this sanctuary was initially founded not as a sanctuary but as an observatory back in the 1970s this is way before born freeze involvement uh we took over in 2008 i think after it had been through various iterations but the population of macaques here are predominantly uh, descendants of an initial population again before when when it started they were kind of uh, allowed to breed and it was all sounding kind of chaotic and a little bit out of control but that population actually came from Japan so in the 70s there was a group of a troop of monkeys who were outside of Kyoto and it was one of those situations where you know people were interested in them sort of tourists would go and see them they were provisioning them the troop grew and grew and grew and became very kind of um, 
accustomed to having humans around and gradually began to encroach on more suburban areas. And then they came into kind of human wildlife conflict. So the authorities uh, having the, you know, this troop had been this kind of tourist attraction for many years, but the authorities planned to kill the monkeys because they were causing too much trouble. And my understanding is there was a, there was an anthropologist who had been studying them who had possibly an uncle who was a, a rancher in Texas who had all this land. And they came up with this, um, we say in England, crackpot idea of bringing uh, some of the monkeys over in order to kind of quote unquote rescue them. It was it was set up as a behavioral research project, essentially. Um, so 144 monkeys were flown from Japan to South Texas. And that's how this place kind of began. And then we took over it, it went through a number of hands over the years. It was it was run by an animal welfare organization before us. We merged with them, took over in 2008 and kind of started the long, the long journey of turning this site into a kind of true legitimate sanctuary, which it now is. So we still have a lot of those descendants. Uh, we no longer, they no longer breed. We're not perpetuating the population as obviously we were just talking about. But also Japanese macaques are used uh, pretty regularly in experimentation still. Um, and they're also used in the pet trade. We've had uh, guys come to us from zoos. So yeah, they're, they're still around, but I think macaques are one of the, one of the monkeys that are commonly kept as pets, particularly say rhesus macaques. But I think when we think of pet monkeys, we perhaps think more of the ones we see more on television, which are the capuchins or the smaller monkeys, maybe the marmosets. Um, but yeah, macaques are still very popularly kept. That is a really bizarre story to end up with a bunch of Japanese macaques in, in southern Texas. Um, the act is um, – the Captive Primate um, Safety Act is trying to shut down this illegal trade or legal trade um, in in uh, primates. But how, how does it actually work? I mean we know on the backside – you know, the things that we've talked about with people like o Ophir and with Greg Tully at PASA, you know, of people capturing them in the wild. But how does it work in terms of I'm sitting here and I want to buy a monkey of some kind? How how does that process work in the US? Sure. So I think there's there's a there are really interesting parallels between the legal trade and the illegal trade. And it actually creates a pretty it's a bit of a red herring. It creates a gray area when we talk about this from legislative perspective, which I can get into in a minute. But most of the primates who are kept as pets here in the US will have been born in the US. So they will have been um, acquired some, you know, they are descendants of some monkey who was obviously at some stage taken from their wild home. But honestly, since, you know, sort of the 60s and 70s, um, since CITES legislation became more, well, was introduced and became more stringent than actually what we saw, we saw a similar thing happen with zoos that the, the trade of bringing animals in from their, their native countries was kind of curtailed. And so what we saw was um, an increase in breeding in country. And that's where we saw, you know, the zoo industry, that's where we saw breeding programs established um, and the pet trade was very similar. So the animals who we see in the pet trade today will have been born in the US, generally speaking. Now, of course, one of the major problems is that the legal trade masks illegal trade. And the difficulty is if you, you know, if you're legally allowed to breed, say, capuchin monkeys, then identifying if a capuchin monkey has been smuggled illegally um, into the US becomes very difficult because 
they may well be being kept legally. And I saw quite a lot of that, believe it or not, that, you know, that sounds like something that would be fairly common in the States because of the proximity, you know, capuchins are native to Central and South America. So you kind of think the proximity would mean that you would see uh, if illegal trade was anywhere. But I've, I know of two out of 10 at the time capuchin monkeys at the sanctuary I worked at in the UK who had been smuggled out of their native country and into the United Kingdom. So, and then what happens is they're kept, but nobody really knows whether they're being kept legally or Ill- illegally because of that. Um, so honestly, actually acquiring a monkey in the US is very simple. You can go on Craigslist or you can go to a pet shop in some cases, um, or you can join an internet forum. And these breeders exist and monkeys, if you've got the money and you can, you know, and you can meet the person at a particular place, then the actual process of purchase is is pretty simple there's no license required there's no i mean there's no does the breeder have to be licensed does the prospective new owner have to get any kind of license so there's no training there's no anything one of the biggest challenges in the u.s is the patchwork of state legislation in some states there is absolutely nothing um in some states you may need to require you may need to acquire a permit to be able to own a monkey in some states you may it may be banned to own a particular kind of monkey um, or a particular kind of ape and generally speaking um those are the species the banned species are generally banned on the basis that they're considered dangerous to humans. Um, So it might be that the ownership of great apes, um, baboon species, those who are considered to be able to really do harm. Now, of course, all monkeys can do harm, particularly if we think of it from a zoonotic disease perspective, which we're all unfortunately far more familiar with now because of COVID. Um, So yeah, it would really depend on where you are. Um, what species of monkey you have. And honestly, even for those of us who are working on this issue, one of the reasons that we support a federal a solution for this um, is not just because it is the, you know, it's the most sensible way to do it. And so that it just creates sort of a across the board understanding is that even for those of us working on it, trying to find what the legislation is in any given state can be very difficult. Because, you know, it's not something that comes up very often. So we find this a lot when we're trying to understand what laws are on a number of different issues that we contact, a, you know, a, a state sort of authority and ask them. So what is, you know, what's the regulation? Who's responsible for it? And much of the time they don't really know. They don't know who even within their various departments might be responsible for it. Well, it's, uh, yeah. and yet it, I mean, it's, I, I, correct me if I'm wrong, but one of the, in doing some research uh, for this, one of the numbers that, that um, our producer Meg ran across was in 2015, the primate trade volume was estimated at $138 million. In, and that's just in the U.S. Yeah. And the, uh, and that was 2015, that's six, six seven years ago. Yeah, it's. So, I mean, even. I, I mean, it's, sort of, it's not a small business. No, it's not. It's not. Um, and they, they do these monkeys will sell for thousands of dollars. They're not. Yeah, they are not cheap to purchase at all, and they're not cheap to care for. I think that's also one of the, you know, one of the things that they they end up coming to us as we've already talked about, and as you said, Ophir had mentioned. You know, this is a this is a multi decade commitment. Um, 
And these, you know, they have very specific diets. They have very specific housing requirements now that we think can't be provided in captivity, but just from a set, just keeping them alive and making and keeping them in a secure enclosure that you are not going to get really seriously injured or killed is a huge investment. And that's without even thinking about their welfare needs. So yeah, there's, there's a lot of money to be made and there's a lot of money to be spent for sure. Hmm. Um, the cap, let's, uh, I just want to pivot back to the, the captive mm-hmm. primate safety act for a second. Where, where does it stand right now? What, what is needed? If, if people were listening to this and they said, okay, I, I want to help make this happen. What, what, what is needed to get this thing into law? Because it sounds like there's no, this sounds like it will be a national act versus this patchwork of, of yeah. things you were just describing. Absolutely. It's, it, it is a, it's a federal uh, level act, which is brilliant. Um, it would amend the Lacey Act. Um, so it, it looks very similar in structure to anybody who's been following uh, the big cat Public Safety Act, which is a, a similar piece of legislation, which would effectively achieve the same thing for big cats. Um, it takes on that structure. Um, so, you know, we're all hope those of us working on this issue are hoping we can get both of them through. We have some um, actions on our website. We're basically at this stage, it's been introduced in the House and the Senate, and we're just now seeking support from Congress people. So we would ask people to contact their representatives and just ask them to get on board with this, to support it as it sort of starts its passage through. That's that's the best thing we can do at the moment. And in the meantime, organizations like ours, we're working in coalition with a number of great organizations on this issue, then we're raising awareness around it and just really kind of helping helping us to spread the message and get it out there and then there's you know there's a lot of other kind of associated things that we can do as individuals and that speaks to you know not supporting or promoting the the exploitation of primates within other arenas um so you know we've seen a huge increase in the use of of primates as kind of in on influencer accounts on things like Instagram and um, Facebook and places like that. So all of those things, uh, the use of animal primate actors in films and television programs, all of these things normalize this kind of idea that primates belong in human environments. And there's actually been, there's been really interesting research done on this by uh, Stephen Ross who has written a number of articles which looked at kind of public perceptions of primates when they are represented in human centric environments. So basically it was, it, it was a really relatively kind of simple test as I understand it, where there would be um, a picture of a chimp in it's kind of superimposed into a living room or Uh, something like that, then another one of a chimp in their natural environment. And then they kind of got people's opinions on what that meant. And what was found was that the more people saw these animals in human-centric environments, not only did they believe that they would make better pets, but they also believed that their conservation status was less threatened than it actually was, which I thought was a really interesting kind of Side so this idea that these animals are be are able to be kept as pets may also have a direct influence on their conservation status in the wild. I, I, it does have a huge influence, which I, I did want to talk to you about because there, you know, there are channels in which you can 
you know, Facebook owns Instagram and Instagram is one of the biggest um, purveyors of, the, of, of some of this activity. I know we did um, for a piece that we were doing for our, our Apes Like Us uh, YouTube channel, we did a, a survey of, of the stuff we found on Facebook a couple of years ago. And it was just, it, it actually blew me away the number of of chimps dressed up and mostly chimps, um, some orangutans as well, but chimps that were dressed up in t-shirts, sweatshirts, car, you know, all kinds of costuming and people had privately, a lot of it came from, you know, areas outside the U S like Cairo and, and other places. Um, but, but it was really shocking how much of it was on social media. And the, and the reach of those things are just, uh, they're mind-boggling that you know millions of people can see these. I was at, I was talking to a good friend of mine, Brooke Aldrich, who is is a primatologist, and she's worked in this field for for many years. Um, and she was telling me, which I did not know, that also there's been investigations into some of these these quote unquote rescue videos where there is a a, a snake is attacking a, a baby lion. I don't know, for example. And what has been found is that these have actually been staged for literally for likes and views. And of course, now there's a kind of, you know, the more the, the sort of insidious idea that these are also now monetized, of course, because people make their living from these things. So there is also this this weird sort of monetary element to it of the exploitation, which brings you know, because we think of social media as, you know, sort of just sharing our lives with with one another in this kind of public slash private sphere. But of course, like everything, it is now becoming something that can be extremely lucrative. Um, and I didn't know at all about the fact that some of these videos were being staged, which I think just brings a whole new level of, of ick to it. I wish I could think of a better word right now, but... <laughs> What, if anything, does this, uh, does the primate, uh, the the Captive Primate Act, what does it do in terms of social media, in terms of groups like Facebook or, or Google or any of those? It, it doesn't touch on that. Um, and honestly, I think if it did, we would have a much bigger battle on our hands because of the, the fear and backlash around censorship and in some ways quite rightly so i think you know the the censorship is bad um but i think one of the th one of the things we struggle with in this arena is that those of us who know what we're seeing see that these are animals in distress and would you know would absolutely categorize some of what we're seeing in these videos as animal cruelty and i think that's our biggest stumbling block is that we are looking at it through different lenses so somebody who through you know why would you know what a, a fear grimace is in a baby macaque if you've never had anything to do with monkeys why would you look at a baby monkey and think my god they must be literally 2 or 3 weeks old um you wouldn't know these things and you wouldn't know what the impact on these animals would be so i can watch one of these you know these these short clips a minute of a, a tiny infant monkey pale face clearly never been outside um clearly very sick be, with a fear grimace on their face being you know shampooed in a sink and I can look at that and say that is animal cruelty. And I look, but I look at that with 17 years' experience of working with these animals and knowing what I'm looking at. What 
Joe Public will see through no fault of their own is this adorable baby being given a bath because that's what we do to babies. And so I think one of our biggest challenges with these platforms is to convince the platforms themselves to understand that what they're allowing to be transmitted isn't just an issue of difference of opinion. It's not an issue of, you know, everyone has the, you know, freedom of speech. It's that this is in and of itself cruel to these animals. Um, and that's the battle we have. Honestly, I don't think that battle will be won on those grounds. I think the battle will be won by banning the trade altogether because I think we're it's so difficult. Social media, I think, is a wonderful thing and it's done it's done brilliant things in terms of opening the world up. But I think the the flip side to that is that it everyone's on a level playing field, you know, everyone's opinion is valid, which and, you know, obviously in, in many cases, that is absolutely the case. But I think what it also does is it raises expertise and it, and it, it kind of, and it negates expertise. So you will, you know, I've seen people who are so smart and have so much background on this kind of, you know, in right in there in the comments, you know, getting into it with someone who it's not the place it's not the forum people are people are not necessarily there to be educated they don't want to hear that when you know they've just seen this cute video it's made them smile they don't want to get into an academic debate about the you know the developmental um challenges that the, that that monkey's going to face because of it so i almost feel like you can't even have the conversations there it needs to be outside and and those those outside influences need to be imposed rather than trying to get into it with with facebook or instagram because i mean we've seen it with so many things we've seen it with human rights issues we've seen it with with racism we've seen it with all sorts of things the unwillingness to step in i think we are we are way down the list with animal cruelty issues um, and particularly ones which are not instantly recognizable. So I, I personally think it's not the best forum to fight, to fight our battles. We've had a challenge with that as well. And, and we have, you know, not, not necessarily debates. We're on the same page, but discussions about how to use, um, you know, we have an Instagram account, we have a Facebook account, we, um, the sanctuaries, uh, and our project partners in the field, um, there's this flood of images and how do we use them? Because we know that people don't necessarily read captions. We, we often have put up images in which people react to, and it's like, there was only three lines of a caption here. Didn't you read it? it we explained what this was, what was happening. And yet people react positively or negatively just because it's, they just look at the image. Um, so yeah, it, it it's a huge, huge challenge. Has the challenge changed in the past two years in particular because of COVID, because of people's greater awareness of of the word zoonosis, the the idea that you know animals can pass diseases? Have you seen a shift um in any of the conversations um that you've had with people or any of the awareness that Born Free has done? I've certainly seen a shift in the conversations that we're having because suddenly this thing we have been talking about for so many years is a term that people people now have something personal to relate it to. And I think that's that's been really important. Um, I think I'm just thinking back to, you know, a, a number of years ago working on 
the the primate pet trade issue in the UK and really struggling to make government officials and you know and other sort of areas of society understand that a mama it's almost laughable you know a marmoset that can you know who can literally sit on the palm of your hand could be dangerous um and we have argued all along that you know the the UK government was considering banning primates as pets on on the grounds that they were dangerous but they were kind of had a list of of animals uh, or species who they thought were particularly dangerous and of course what they're thinking is you know bite injuries or scratch injuries or that you know sort of a very physical um easily recognizable injury and what we were talking about was was also zoonotic diseases and it was almost laughable to them that we were suggesting that these tiny little monkeys might be dangerous and we you know we were we were trying to talk about the disease element and it was just it just wasn't taken seriously i don't think we've seen any kind of shift in in policy or and i don't think we will for some time because i think we're still internalizing it and i think we're still trying to understand uh, you know, we don't we don't even know how COVID's going to play out yet. But I think the conversations we're going to be having in the next few years are going to be vital. And I think one area where we have seen an interesting shift is in fur farming, because there has been this specific link to mink being able to carry COVID, um, and also the you know evidence that it has passed from mink on fur farms to humans and potentially back again. You know, we've seen a, an example in Utah of a wild mink now with the same strain of COVID. So, and I think governments around the world, not yet the US, but certainly in Europe have taken that seriously. And, you know, the, the, the fur farming industry, the mink farming industries that have been shut down in Europe have essentially been those that were penned to be shut down anyway, and it's been brought forward. But I think that's quite interesting. So, where there has been a very clear link to this specific virus that we are dealing with right now, then we are seeing seeing more reaction. I'm interested to see how this this conversation plays out, and I'm kind of uh, I I think it's going to be I think it can only be beneficial to the argument that we now know collectively as a society what zoonotic disease is. I'm it's devastating that this is the way we learnt about it, but. Yeah, it, I think it's going to play out in the next few years, and it'll be very interesting to see that. It's well, it seems to be the way we learn about most things, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, <laughs> we, absolutely. It, we have to have wildfires and heat and massive heat waves and heat bubbles, uh, and you know, and buildings collapse in Florida before we start taking climate change seriously. So, this is maybe, and especially with primates. Um, the transmission of zoonotic diseases between um, non-human primates and humans, maybe that will stir some people to to think about it in a different way. I know that, um, you know, I'll, I'll mention that the, the Captive Primate Safety Act is being pushed is bipartisan. It's, you know, there are senators and republic and uh, representatives on both sides of the aisle that are involved in it. So it's, it's not something that's a, a liberal issue or a conservative issue. And uh, I noticed that in some of the statements that all of those representatives and senators were making, um, they did bring up disease transmission as, as one of the, you know, driving forces behind this. For sure. I mean, if I, you know, the, the, the animals we look after here, the, you know, the vast majority of the monkeys we have here, like 300 or so of the, all of them are macaque species. 
And macaques, the majority of macaque species, macaque species or individuals belonging to macaque species can be carriers of the herpes V virus. Now, the herpes B virus, if it's contracted by a human and goes untreated, is fatal in 80% of cases. That there is there. There's your reason to never buy a pet monkey. And it, and it baffles me. You know, we have, uh, we have, we have always used very strict PPE here. We always wear gloves. We don't have any deliberate contact with the monkeys. We wear overalls when we're, we're splash masks. We do everything we need to do to protect our staff. From this fire, every member of staff has the very first thing that they learn on their first day is we sit down and we have this serious conversation about herpes B and disease transmission and the risks. And then we get this call about this rhesus monkey who's on a leash being walked around by someone's grandchild. And the only thing I can assume is that people don't know because no one in the, you know, no one would put their themselves or anyone else at risk by that. So I'm hoping that that will be something that now people really make the connection to for sure. And I think the other interesting thing about the the Captive Primate Safety Act is, is another issue which it has the support of law enforcement um, because they're the ones who then have to put themselves in front of these animals when it all hits the fan. You know, so Buck, the chimpanzee who was killed that we kind of mentioned a while ago, just a few weeks ago, he was shot in the head by a, a sheriff's deputy. And that means that sheriff's deputy putting themselves in a position where they are, you know, right in front of this this very dangerous wild animal who had no business being there in the first place. And, you know, Buck the chimpanzee was killed. He lost his life because of this chain of events that led him to be there. And he lost his life because he was behaving as an adult male chimpanzee does and can. And, you know, so law enforcement officers are also very supportive of this because, yeah, when it all goes wrong, they're the ones who are put in direct line of danger, which is, again, kind of a, a, just an extension of these tragic stories that keep happening to animals and people. And most of them have absolutely zero training with dealing with something like this. I mean, how how many times does an absolutely. officer get trained I, I on mean, killing a chimp, you know, or or handling a chimp once they've killed it? You know, exactly. So, yeah. Exactly. And I think one, you know, our staff, you know, we do we do drills. We, um, you know, some of us have experience in open contact and or just from years of you know years of working and but you know, we don't have that expertise. If we, you know, we, we train as much as we can, but it's not something that even people who've worked in this field for decades really have a great, you know, great experience of dealing with. Because honestly, if, if you're, if you have a lot of experience of dealing with kind of, you know, escaped animals, you're not doing it right because our first and foremost aim is to keep them safe and to keep us safe. So, you know, even people with decades of primate experience are not going to have this great experience for how to deal with a, an angry, aggressive, escaped primate. So yeah, it's, it's really horrifying. It's really scary. And there are far too many stories where, where people, people have been, have suffered life-changing injuries and the animals almost, you know, without exception end up being killed. But what can we do? I mean, in a, in a, in a dream scenario you might have, what are the, these two things? One is what, what can we do to make 
their lives better. We've kind of touched on it a little bit. And specifically, what would you like people to do going forward with both the the care, the the captive uh, primate act and just awareness around the situation with primates? Sure. Um, I think with the Captive Primate um, Safety Act is for short to follow its progress. Um, you can do that via our organization, Born Free USA, or you can do it by um, other partner organizations who are working on it. But just keep track of it when there is an action to take, um, particularly when it means involving your representative, engaging with your representative, please do so. If you're not in the States, there's actually a similar process going on in the UK at the moment. The legislation, unfortunately, isn't as strong and it's proposing a a licensing regime, but you know you can get involved in that process via a number of organisations there, and any similar process that that happens in in your home country, just get involved in the in the actual legislative process as much as you can because that's going to be the thing that ultimately makes a difference. Um, and in terms of awareness, is yeah, just just begin to recognize that you know these videos that are out there are are harmful and look to accredited sanctuaries so you can look to sanctuaries which are accredited by uh, the global federation of animal sanctuaries which means they're legitimate see what they're doing see what support they might need i guess remembering that the the arrival at a sanctuary isn't a happy ending and as i think anyone who works in this field will say that we need all the support we can get in order to to make our work possible and to care for these individuals but i think yeah just engage with organizations doing great work for primates and see what they're doing and see what they're asking you to do but uh, above all anybody who's able and willing to get involved in contacting their representatives for the captive primate safety act we'd be really grateful because this is this is the thing that is going to really make a difference on this issue just just so people know it's born free usa and is and the website is uh, it's just bornfreeusa.org. .org. And we're all on all the Twitters and the Instas and the Facebooks and everything. <laughs> exactly. Okay. <laughs> Liz, thank you so much. Uh, this was this was really brilliant because, I, as I said in the beginning, I think it's an issue that people are not very clear on and, and may not be uh, aware of at all. And mm -hmm. so it was really a pleasure to have you on and just bring some of this to light and hopefully uh, anyone listening to this and we'll try to share it in some other ways will um, have a better idea of, of just the challenge that we, we face in this country to make it a non-primate, mm -hmm. non-human non primate country in the future. That would be great. <laughs> exactly. No, thank yeah. you so much for having me. It's been, it's been so much fun talking through all of this. I want to thank Liz Tyson for joining us today on Talking Apes and taking us into the sometimes not always so pleasant world of exotic pets and especially exotic primates owned by people just like you and me. You've been listening to Talking Apes. For each episode, we explore the world of apes with experts from research to outreach, with passionate primate people, and conservationists from around the world. Our guests are at the very forefront of news about our wild primate cousins, and today, our captive primate cousins. You can find previous episodes of Talking Apes on our website at www.globio.org backslash Talking Apes, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you have questions for us here at Talking Apes, or ideas about future podcasts, you can always email us at media at globio.org. 
I'd like to thank Talking Apes producer Meg Stark for all of her work pulling together another great podcast. And finally, I'd like to thank you. Talking Apes podcasts are made possible by listeners like you. So please consider supporting us at Talking Apes with your tax-deductible donation to globio.org. I'm Jerry Ellis. Thanks for listening to Talking Apes.